Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture comes from Acts 8, 26 through 39. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silence and stillness, still our minds race because they're so tuned to being ramped up and inundated with more messages, more ads. The ads that come from without, the voices shouting from without, and that voice that shouts from within, you need to do more, you need to be more. You've failed, you're never going to get it. If they knew the truth about you, they would run. But in the stillness and silence of this place, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to hear your voice, the true voice that sees us and knows us in all of our complexity, all our contradictions, all the ways we get it, and all the ways we don't get it. The ways that we are optimistic and enthusiastic, the ways we are depressed and afraid. The voice that knows us and loves us and calls us your own and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so now we pray that you would break through the noise 
with your voice, that you convince us of your great love for us, that you would fill our minds with your truth, our hearts with your love, our lives with your grace, and then you would send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If, if I'm turning my neck a little funny today, it's because I had, a, I had myself a day yesterday at the best water park in the world, which happens to be 10 miles south of the U.S.-Mexico border. And our friends, Alex and Judy Lim, along with their boys, were in town, and they get to travel the world and see all sorts of neat things, and I thought, I know something I can show you you've never seen before. And if you want to get a sense of what I'm saying, just do a YouTube search on Slip and Fly Tijuana because it is a 45-foot drop of a slip and slide that goes up into a 15-foot ramp, and you're in the air for a good, feels like five hours, and then you land in this pool. And you know, like 22-year-old Matt, pretty easy. 42-year-old Matt, you feel it the next day. Um, you know, I travel across the border often to go and visit with you know, our ministry partners down there and people who are working to help uh, you know, the immigrants who are in some of the most dire situations. Whenever I can, though, just side note, I try to get one hour at the water park. It's just right on the way from one of my meetings. I always pack a bathing suit. And so when I walked in with my buddies, it's their first time, but I know the guy at security. I know the general manager of the park. I know all, you know, I say hi to Ricardo, the lifeguard, Julio, the lifeguard, Mario. The, they're like, how do, why is everyone calling you Mateo, and how do they all know you? I'm like, it's my job to know people here. The world is my office. You know, the pastoral duties do not stop at the international border. Um, but I've always been kind of a bridge builder. It's just, it's in, I don't know, it's in my temperament, it's in my personality. But it's easy to build bridges with people when you're having good times, when you're at the water park. Uh, or, you know, you could build bridges with people when you're at a baseball game and you are all wearing the same jersey, even though you may, have, you may be in different vocations, come from, you know, different socioeconomic levels, all that. But if, if we're on the same team, we're on the same team. And you can build bridges. But it's really hard to build bridges with people that are different than you in a major way like in an unchangeable way, in a seemingly irreconcilable way. One of the ways I try to stay sharp vocabulary-wise is I have dictionary.com on my phone and every day it has a new word of the day. So I try to keep the vocabulary up. Today's word of the day is pathos, right? So it's the old Greek methods of persuasion, ethos, pathos, logos. Pathos uh, pertains to making an argument based on emotion or the quality of being moved by a sensation of pity or compassion or empathy. So you could use it in a sentence and say, you know, knowing the hero at the end of the movie would die a tragic death added to the pathos of the moment that you saw them have great success. Right? It just makes your heart sink. But they also do a word of the year. And several years ago, the word of the year for our country was xenophobia. Xenos, which comes from the word stranger, Phobia, fear. Fear of the stranger. Fear or hatred of foreigners, people from different cultures, or strangers. And I think we could extend that out because it's the same muscle memory. It essentially works on us, them. They are different than us, so we are going to tribalize, then polarize, and then throw stones at them. And so, of course, we see this on kind of ethnic levels, national levels, when our conversation is about immigration. Uh, that's a story as old as time. Everybody needs the scapegoat, so choose the, the newest person who showed up and blame them. Okay, that's a story as old as time. Go back and read any part of civilized history. It's, it's almost always there. 
But we've kind of made it a sport in our country, and it's become more exacerbated in, in the past years just with the social media algorithms. There are supercomputers working around the clock to make sure that you click more on ads, but they really don't care if you have good information or not. They just want you to click because they want to sell ads. If you've seen um, The Social Dilemma, it really de delves into this well. Highly recommend. So now it's not just xenophobia, but it's fear of other and any topic. Right? Roe v. Wade has really brought this up. We're not even ready to hear each other's perspectives or positions because we're so sure of our own. I have friends texting me, what do you think about Roe v. Wade? I say, I would love to have lunch with you and talk about this. It is not going to be well communicated in a text message. But we expect for that to be able to, to happen. And then we wonder why we're completely divided. Right? That happens in area, questions of sexuality or marriage rights. It happens in our a way that as a country, how serious is COVID and how should we respond? It's happening right now on the main stage in Congress as we look at the January 6th hearings. In every way, we've made it a sport to have fear of others. And I think you know from personal experience as well as world history, we don't make our best decisions from a place of fear. Now, I realize someone right now is listening and going, yeah, and Matt, Pastor Matt, this is what I hate about the church, is the church actually spiritualizes it and weaponizes it, and the church is complicit often, I'm talking the church with a big C, is often complicit in that tribalizing. So now it's not only we have a fear of others, pick your own. A liberal church will say this against conservatives, a conservative church will say this against liberals, but not only am I right and you're wrong, but God's on my side. And once you're convinced God's on your side, no one can tell you any different. I mean, you're kind of locked in. But the problem is the other side thinks the same thing. So just know that I hear that, I see that, and we're going back to the scriptures of the earliest church, and I want you to see that it is at the bedrock core of the gospel to bring all of these different groups of people together in Christ. I think right now, a unity with charity and grace is one of the gifts that the church can give to a needy and watching world. And that's not just convenience for us. Hooray, we have something the world needs. That's actually in our core DNA. And this episode in the life of the early church shows us how the gospel has the unique kind of power to break through all sorts of walls that we build against one another. Now we're in kind of a mini-series here looking at the lesser-known heroes of the faith. And so we've looked at Priscilla and Aquila. Last week we looked at Stephen. We're just continuing on through Acts of the Apostles, which could be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we come to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't even know the Ethiopian eunuch's name. We just have these descriptors. Uh, he's wealthy. He's the, in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He was in charge of the money for an empire that stretched from modern-day Egypt through Sudan to Ethiopia. This is a wealthy person, but this is also a religious outsider. We'll get into all of that. And here's the context. In Acts chapter 1, just after Jesus had been publicly crucified, had risen from the dead, and appeared to his friends and shocked them as much as it would shock you or me if the risen Jesus stood in front of you. So it's not like Jesus rose from the dead and they all said, of course he did. They were all as shocked as you or I would. And Jesus said, take heart, you will receive power from on high, talking about the Holy Spirit of God who would be not only with us, but in us. And when you do, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Start where you are and go outward. And they said, got it. And then on Pentecost, the Spirit comes, and you know what they did? They didn't go anywhere. 
because they do what you and I do. They made themselves comfortable. They like the status quo. It took the martyrdom, the, the, the killing of Stephen to act like dynamite and explode the church out of Jerusalem because it was unsafe to be there any longer. And so now we get to Philip in verse 26. And God tells Philip to go to Gaza on the south road from Jerusalem. And Luke, the writer of Acts, who took, took really good footnotes, says, by the way, this was, if you don't know, this was a wilderness road. This was a wilderness road. God had to tell this man to go down a road that nobody in their right mind would walk if they had the opportunity to do otherwise. It would be like God saying to you, especially if you're not a night person, go to university in 30th at four o'clock in the morning and stand there among the drug dealers and the prostitutes and everybody else. Go walk through East Village by the ballpark at three o'clock in the morning. Go down the wilderness road. So God's calling Philip into something that A, doesn't make a ton of sense and B, is scary. If you feel like God's calling you into something that doesn't make a ton of sense and B, is scary, you're in good company. But it goes even deeper than that because this tag that it was a wilderness road is actually a, a file folder that if you double click on it, all sorts of other memories would open up. Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the deceiver. And so the wilderness is a cipher not only for where things can attack you from without, but where you're going to be alone with yourself. There's isolation and there's danger. And God says, I will be with you in the wilderness. Some of you right now are going through a wilderness season of life. It might be a loss in your family. It might be a sense of uncertainty about your career path. It might be the way that the federal interest rates rising have made it impossible for you to buy a house at this time and you thought by this point you would be in the running to own a home. It might be an unfair boss or a career path that feels like it's kind of hitting the ceiling. These are all externals. But the wilderness could also be internals. The ways that you are striving and hoping for change, you want to be a different person, become a better version of yourself, and yet here you are in the same rut and you feel stuck. And God comes to you and says, I'm with you in the wilderness. I will not leave you or forsake you. So Philip, in a moment of courage, because sometimes we have moments of courage, sometimes we don't happen to have a moment of courage, and he actually goes. And what does he see? Verse 27, he comes to this Ethiopian. As I said, this person who would be in charge of the treasury for an empire that spanned miles, and a thousand miles, actually. I did Google Maps and did walking from one side of the empire to the other. Thousand miles. In charge of the queen's treasury, he would be educated, he would be accomplished, he would be connected. You know, today we might say you could pick up the phone and call anybody in the empire. Back then, maybe he'd send a homing pigeon to anybody in the empire. He had access. This person had possession of a scroll. They were reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Do you know the percentage of the population of the world at that point that could read? Somewhere around, I don't know, between one in five. And this person was a eunuch. 
This was a person who was sexually altered. And in this part of the world, that was part of the price that you pay for the kind of power this person had. And in, their, in the way that they saw things, it would be, you know, this person is going to be in the halls of power. They're going to be around kings and queens. They're going to be around harems. They can't be a threat. And so they would castrate these people. And so on one hand, he's an insider. He has education and access and finances. On the other side, this person's an outsider, sexually. It's right here in the earliest pages of scripture. And in verse 28, this eunuch comes to Jerusalem to worship and has gone on a long journey. I also did the Google Maps walking search from the center of their empire to Jerusalem. And it's about 2,100 miles. There are no direct flights from this person's empire to Jerusalem. This person walked or rode in a chariot for 2,100 miles. It was also a devastating journey because this person is obviously spiritually hungry. This person has heard something about Yahweh, the God of all. This person has come to this, the, the temple center of Jerusalem. And when they got there, they would have been greeted with the prescription that comes from the Old Testament that says, eunuchs are not allowed to enter the temple to worship because they're not people of God. Just put yourself in that person's place in that moment. This is a person who crossed the known world to investigate God and to worship and would be turned away because of their sexual status. I'm not trying to shoehorn this, shoehorn this into a national conversation. I, we're just reading the same scripture together. This is the context. And so you can hear the tremor in this person's voice when they ask, what would, present, what would prevent me from being baptized? What would prevent me from entering into this story? And you would assume this person would think, everything, it's not for me. It's not for people like me. And so you see here, the Christian story both embraces and challenges all kinds of people. All of us. Many of you come and ask me, what is preventing me from becoming a Christian? And the answer is, nothing. Nothing but you. God's answer is yes. Now, we are going to work all of that out. This is not a, a case for universalism or saying that everything goes or relativism, not at all. But we need to see in the scriptures that Jesus, when someone comes to him and says, what's to prevent me from coming to you? The answer is nothing. See, we love that when we think about ourselves standing before God. Oh, thank God. But we can't stand to think it about whoever them is for you. But just as God's grace is for you, it's for them. That's why the grace of God is so offensive, because it lets people in that you think don't deserve to be there. But the funny thing is they don't think you deserve to be there either. And Jesus says, my ability to welcome you into my kingdom is far greater than your narrow views of this world. It means that whatever your story is, means whatever you've done, or whatever to this point you've left undone, he welcomes you. It means that when you look in the mirror and wonder if you have sinned away your day of grace, 
Nothing will keep you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. I think this is what Paul the Apostle was getting at later when he says in Romans 8, for neither height nor depth nor width nor breadth nor angels or demons or life or death, he's saying everything. Nothing will keep you from the love of God in Christ. Let that welcome you and let that offend you. Because on one hand it says that no one in here is so good that you don't need God. That offends us. Especially if you're a self-made person, you've worked hard at your education, you work hard at your career, you work hard on your health, and you've got it all going together for this period of life. And there are periods of life when you can enjoy every aspect of life, and that's great. But if you live long enough, the wilderness will come. But for those of us who either have it all together or who have the ability to posture like we have it all together, that's offensive. Because it says you're so broken that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to make you right with God. But then it encourages you because it says he was gladly willing to give his life on your behalf. This is why Renewed Church is made up of people uh, who travel the world regularly and people who've never been out of San Diego. It's made up of people who own multiple properties and people who are experiencing homelessness. People of different ethnic, cultural, and national backgrounds people of different sexual orientations, people who are liberal and conservative, people in all places of your spiritual journey. I'm not making these up as abstract categories. I'm trying to make it real for you what everything looks like. And one of the things that encourages me about this church is even in our infantile state, we're coming together around Christ. As I like to say, the church is a gathering of people who don't normally belong together. Gathering around Christ for the sake of those who don't belong. A group of people who normally don't belong together gathering around Christ for the sake of those who don't belong. And when we do, the watching world takes notice. The watching world says, I know what people do in the Republican and Democrat conversation. They find friends that think like them, go out for a beer, throw stones at the other people, and then assault them online. That's what they do. But you people don't all even vote the same way and you come together. How do you do that? Or pick any topic. And when we do, we say we're part of the miracle of the church that Jesus is bringing together. This is why we strive to serve all of our neighbors both right here on this block with you know, organized events like Know Your Neighbor that happens the first Saturday of every month where we bring together our neighbors without homes and our neighbor with homes and conversation and relationship begins. But that's just the tip of the iceberg with the organized part of the church. It's really the, the organic part of the church is where there's so much life. It's where you are empowered to go out and do likewise in your circles of influence, your relational circles, in your career, in your family, on your block. And it's why we care for our neighbors who are geographically nearby and why we our concern and care for our neighbors who are farther away, starting with our neighbors in Tijuana. We live on the, on the edge of the busiest border crossing in the world. In the world. Go 15 miles south of here and people are in completely different conditions. The clean water that you take for granted every day is not something that our friends 15 miles south take for granted every day, for starters. And so we partner with ministries with our friends in Mexico who are doing great work to help those who are in the most difficult parts of their lives. 
or around the world, we continued to pray for and sustain and support a hospital in South Sudan that was started in a war zone. As people were leaving the region, these people are going in to start health care for people who most need it. Or our friends Jay and Sarah Seelan, who are a part of this church and have their ministry in India, in Jay's hometown in India, in Chennai, Masala Ministries. So you just see that it's, it's local, it's international. It's every spectrum of every person you can imagine coming together around Christ. Does that seem impossible? It seems impossible to me. But it's happening. In fits and starts, it's happening. It started happening here with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's happening today in this church and other churches around the city. So let me just get into the Ethiopian eunuch's kind of outsider-ness for a second. Because there are two designations that would make this person a complete outsider, both ethnically and sexually. Here's the point. This, in verse 29, the Spirit says to, Peter, to Philip, God Almighty uh, schemes this moment. And I want you to picture this, because I think it's kind of a comical scene. There's this chariot coming by. And you would imagine it's with like regal fanfare, and they would have attendants going out before and behind. Obviously, this is a representative of royalty. And God says to Philip, go to that chariot and get beside it. And so you can picture Philip kind of running up to this chariot and like, hello, good morning. How are you doing? What are you reading? Here's this conservative, middle-class, Jewish, church-going man riding along in a chariot, wading into water to welcome into the family of God a sexually altered man from the other side of the world. In other words, the first non-Jewish person to join the Christian church is a black man from Africa, not a white man from Europe, who is a sexual outcast in his society. And we see God speaking and gracing and gathering people who would otherwise never be together. Uh, Laman Senek, who is an African professor at Yale, in his book, Whose Religion is Christianity?, talks about the ethnic diversity in the global Christian church and how it's different than any other major world religion. Now, these numbers are a little bit old, but the, but the picture, the point, will be crystal clear. So, as a professor at Yale, doing his analysis, he comes and he tells us, all of the major religions except Christianity, if you look at where their population centers are, their population centers are still roughly near where they started. The cultures out of which they developed are still there, where the vast majority of the adherents of that particular religion is, and that, of course, plays into the theory that religion is just an extension of culture, right? So you'd, say, you'd hear someone say, of course you believe the way you do, you are born into the culture that you are born into. Sure. He says, for example, 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. Whereas in Europe, North America, South America, China, the Far East, there's only 4% of Muslims. In other words, 96% of Muslims are around where it started. 88% of Buddhists live in, a, in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. And then Sena goes on to point out that when you get to Christianity, it's entirely different. He says it's the only worldwide religion. 25% of Christians are in Central and South America and the Caribbean. 22% are in Africa. 15% of all Christians are in Asia, and that number is growing very fast. Only 12% of all the Christians in the world are in North America, and something like 20% are in Europe. 
In other words, he shows that the gospel is not a European faith uh, or a Middle Eastern faith or a, uh, an African faith. The gospel is something that when it comes into a culture, actually breathes life into that culture and so you don't lose your cultural uh, uniqueness, significance, but you're actually brought up into a much bigger family, which it would stand to reason if God created all of us, wouldn't that be the way it works out? That God moves toward us in all of our differences. Uh, Richard Bauckham, a scholar at St. Andrews in Scotland, what kind of a world-class seminary says, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Now, I want to be very clear here. This is not merely a story of inclusion. Um, it's nothing less than that, but it's a whole lot more than that. Inclusion is a hot word now for urban, open-minded people. Okay? But if you get this upside down, it will crumble. It is not inclusion, and so we can accept the gospel that Jesus Christ has rescued us. It is the gospel that Jesus Christ has rescued us, which gives us a way to actually include everybody. Only the gospel is a strong enough foundation to actually be able to welcome the outsider that's different than you. Right? So this is different than merely a social program that says get out there, do better, be better. It's just the right thing to do. No, no, no. It's grounded in God who has become one of us so that we might become one with God who's done for us what we could never do for ourselves and rescues us, move toward us when we're different than God, of course, so that then we can move toward others. Do you see where the fuel of it comes? If you only hear the story of inclusion, you will miss the deep logic of the gospel that breaks down the barriers that we put up between each other. And the clue is in what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. He's reading this part of this, the prophet Isaiah. And the part of the role of the prophets in the Old Testament was to go to the people of God and recognize the brokenness of this world and call them back to God who would rescue them. And so he's reading this part of Isaiah 53 that's in part of the catalog that's known as the servant songs about the coming Messiah who will make all things right. The long promised one who would redeem the world by taking on its pain. By suffering for the world. That would be the shockingly mysterious way that the all-powerful creator of the universe would put the world to rights. This one who would bear our sin and our shame for the whole world, for all kinds of people, so that we could be reunited to God. And so earlier in Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering servant, which then brings us to the part that this Ethiopian eunuch was reading, verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shearer so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For life is taken away from the earth. And before that, it talks about the one who was blemishless and blameless on whom took the brokenness of this world. And so the eunuch asks the question, can you imagine the confusing nature of it if you just open the Bible to any page and you start with that that's why I don't, I don't suggest if you want to know God to open the Bible from any page. It's not, not all that helpful if you start at 53 of Isaiah. And that's where this person was. But can you see what made, Isaiah, what made the Ethiopian eunuch's heart beat faster? Here was this outsider 
Here was this one who had been pushed away, who was actually going to enter into the center to bring all people in and make all things right. And so he asks, who's this person talking about, himself or someone else? And we learn, Philip tells him the story of who this servant song was about. Can you imagine Philip starting right there in the chariot, saying, this is foretelling Jesus Christ, who in this very town of Jerusalem was unjustly accused by the power, the collusion of the power of both empire and religion, the worst of both, and it all fell crashing on him. This town, Jerusalem, is the one in which that Messiah was crucified outside the city gates so that you could be brought inside the great city of God. That Messiah is the one who cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you could know the welcome and acceptance of God? That is the God who comes among us in person to suffer for our shame and evil, to even overcome our death so we can enjoy God's outrageous grace and forgiveness forever. In other words, the Christian story, the gospel is so radically inclusive of all people because it so deeply humbles all people. What the Ethiopian eunuch hears that, his, that turns his world upside down is that he is no better and no worse than this Bible-believing religious man next to him. Both need the gospel of grace. And both get it. Christianity is radically inclusive because it's radically exclusive. I want to point this out too. That when Philip asks, what's this all about? Uh, I'm sorry, when the Ethiopian eunuch asks, what is this all about? Philip does not merely say, all roads lead to Rome, just follow your own path. Philip does not merely say, you know, you have a lot of things going in your life, just keep on doing what you're doing and God will accept you. Philip begins with the gospel of God's grace as news of what God has done to get through to us. That's why we say the gospel is good news. That's actually what the word gospel, euangelion, means, good news. The gospel is news. That's, that God has actually done something in space and time to make us right with God. It is not merely basic instructions before leaving earth. It is not more rules or ideas of how to earn your way to God. It is news that God in Christ has done something to break through to you. News that you can receive. News that you can live into. What God has done in God's outrageous grace through Jesus to come to us and draw us back to God's self. So in other words, a Christian is someone who can say, I am more broken than I realize. You can actually, you can say, I'm more broken than I realize. I'm more broken than I want the person next to me to know. And at the same time you say, in Christ, I am more loved than I ever dared to imagine. This is what the cross shows us, which enables you, Christian friends, to develop both deep humility and deep confidence, a humble confidence. Knowing on one hand you're no better than anybody else, so you have no stones to throw, and knowing on the other hand that the only verdict that really matters in this whole world has already been cast on you, beloved. A humble 
confidence. When you can do that, when, when that's the loudest voice going on for you, then that is a very secure and safe home or base or however you want to see it from which to launch out into this world. You can spend time around people with whom you completely disagree about things that deeply matter without living in this binary way of either I need to convince them or they can no longer be my friend. You can finish conversations instead of getting into a nuclear argument with someone with, you know what, I completely disagree with you, but I respect you. You can hang in there for the next paragraph of the conversation when you say, I can't see how you think the way you think, whatever the case might be, but I respect you, and I'd just love to hear more. Would you teach me more about where you get that? As you build trust, you can challenge people with love. You can't challenge someone with love, with, without love or trust and expect them to listen to you right? But I'd make the case probably the people that have had the most profound impact in your life are people with whom you both have a lot of trust and they challenged you at just the right time. The gospel leads to all sorts of deeper relationships and possibilities. This is the gospel that turns outcasts into family. This is the gospel that turns family into a launch pad for healing of this world. And so I invite you today, whether for the first time or the, for the thousandth time, to make this your story, to see this is how God loves you. Let that sink in deep and grow like a redwood in your heart. And then go and love other people likewise. Friends, that is the more challenging way to live. That is the more deep way to live. When you do that individually, it will change your life. When we do that as a community, it will change the world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as you did that morning, for both Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, would you surprise us with your grace? For those of us that are going through the wilderness now, I pray that there would be a sense that you are with us. For those of us that feel pushed out or pushed away for any reason, help us to see that you're actually gathering us together into your kingdom and into your family. For those of us who enjoy privilege or power or access or affluence or uh, influence of any sort, help us to see that you not only move toward us, but then you invite us to use our position in this world to be about this coming kingdom that's marked by grace, that's marked by going out, that's marked by healing. And so we do pray, as you taught us to pray, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.